This is Cave Scott Allen of Otoho.com. This is Kevin Dente. This is John Galloway. This is Scott Kuhn from LazyCoder.com. Hi, this is John. I am at Devs Home Sweden, and I'm talking to Martin Beebe. Hello there. So, I've been a fan of yours for a while. Partly fan, a fan, fan, quite a fan. Ridiculous. Partly <laughs> because of your brilliant uh, blog post yeah. about client requests through the ages. That's my favorite blog post <laughs> I've ever written, to be honest with you. You should have retired just then. Maybe. Yeah, I know. It was, um, it's like, it was a, a throwaway thing that I came up with, which was... I've been working as a web developer for an awful long time, mm-hmm. and I always get these sort of requests from, a, from clients or customers, and it's usually from a certain type of client or customer, which yeah. doesn't really understand technology right. or the context of technology, but they've heard a few buzzwords. Mm-hmm. And so they come to you with sort of a, a request, which isn't really, you know, there's no customer value or, or right. something they were trying to build. They just want... You know the latest thing. I remember you had one that was like needs to integrate with MySpace and and Flash and whatever. And then like your newer ones were like 2017 had like Bitcoin and uh... yeah. So I, I basically have done it since about 2011. So I wrote a big chunk of them. 1999 through to 2011 was like all from memory, right? And then subsequently every year I've written a new one. So it's uh, <laughs> if you if you search for client requests to the Beebs, you'll see. Um, like the the you'll see the actual article, and it's yeah just um, through the ages, whatever the, the the thing of that year was, it was a client <laughs> asking for that one thing. I, I really enjoyed writing it. It was more of a a, a trip down memory lane for me. Yeah, um, but, but it's so it's so perfect. Like it's so spot on, and and I think it brings back like it's a chuckle, but it's also like a we can identify with that. I remember I remember fighting off those. You don't really need like an animated banner ad, or you don't whatever it is, you know. Like, please. And it's all it's like, um, yeah, just like requests for things like uh, they they want to use all the, like all the new multimedia features of Internet Explorer five point five, or you know, I would really like it to be um, compatible with with MySpace or and and of the moment, I always remember when clients would always ask for things like I want. Um, uh, it really needs a dig.com button on it. Or you like things <laughs> yeah. which are completely like irrelevant nowadays, but right. at the time was so important it was to the people. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Or when you'd S- lose the contract if you SEO could not. was really important and they were like, it's gotta be super, super SEO compliant. And and the way that you used to do SEO back in two thousand one wasn't by doing clever things in the head. It was by writing words on the HTML page, then coloring in them the yeah. same background color. And put them in, down at the bottom. The bottom and it would be like irrelevant to the actual feet thing of your website, yeah. but um, would be like tag words that people would want to be searching for. Right. Like, um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> whatever was popular in Britney Spears or whatever, right, like right, right. On, a, on a corporate legal website, which oh and they were just doing it for SEO purposes yeah. to get high rankings in the Yahoo search directory or whatever it Wonderful was. times. So what have you been up to lately? Well, apart from working on the Yahoo search yes, directory yes. and dig.com <laughs> and MySpace, my MySpace profile page, I've been, um, well, I'm, I'm kind of a .NET developer. That's mm-hmm. why I've, I'm a Microsoft developer through and through. I've been doing that since 2000 sort of um, as ASP and then ASP.net. And then maybe in 2001 sort of time, uh, 11 sort of time, I was um, working at Microsoft and we were doing a lot more open source stuff. And so I started getting involved heavily in in Node Mm -hmm. and doing a lot more Node development and kind of took a break 
from .NET. I still do .NET, but I was much more focused on on Node, and um, then that later became Go. Mm-hmm. And then I left Microsoft. So, so Node was like a gateway drug. Yeah, it's like to, to, for me, I, I was always Microsoft through and through. I did everything that Microsoft did. Like I followed mm-hmm. the MSDN blogs, um, right, uh, and 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 basically followed the path that they would be, you mm-hmm. know. And then um, I don't know. It was a colleague or whatever just introduced me to Node, and then I was like, "Wow, okay, I'll start doing a bit of Node. I'll start yeah. doing a bit of Node development." And then, then that got me into like Linux. Well, a I, bit. I, th- I think too, like at the time, I, I knew. I know I had some node envy, like, you know, well, I'm doing ASP.NET and it's okay, but wow, node over there looks really cool. Well, it was it was just like the speed of things. That's true. That, and like yeah. getting things up and running and it wasn't like a file new project. I remember back in the .NET days of using Visual Studio old school, I would like start my machine, then go get a cup of coffee, then I'd do file new projects and I'd go get another coffee. Right, and then I'd right. check out from SourceSafe. Right. And then like... And everything seemed to take forever. Mm-hmm. And then in when I was doing node projects on the side, it was like, oh, like a breath of fresh air of, you know, starting to use things like Git and starting to use... Uh, anyway, it was like a mm-hmm. new little world uh, opening up of open source and, and, and Linux development. And I got into Node and then for even front-end JavaScript development for, for, for a time. And uh, then I sort of started looking at Go and other languages uh, as well. And I started becoming more polyglot. And then I left uh, Microsoft and joined uh, Oracle for a time. And I was working on all sorts of different languages there, but never .NET. Uh And um, it was at that time that I got a little bit like... So, so I'm picturing like you, but with a goatee, maybe during this time. <laughs> right, like, yeah. yeah, it was my. Uh, well, I started working on things like which I'd never done before. I was working on Java and Scala uh-huh. and uh, and. All interesting things, but I think once you know a systems language like C Sharp mm-hmm. and you know it quite intimately, you don't really want to go and learn another one which is very similar. Right. So I didn't really ever find Java to be uh, super interesting. It was just very, very similar. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was uh, at that point I was like, well, so I got a call from um, uh, AWS mm-hmm. and they said, Look, we're looking for a, uh, an, a, an evangelist which goes out and talks about .NET development on AWS. And I was kind of like, maybe I could, I'd quite, it was, it was the right time for me. And I could see all this sort of progressive stuff happening in .NET, mm-hmm. like um, with .NET Core and interesting things. And the blogs and the podcasts that I were following started to pick up again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people that I hadn't necessarily heard of in the .community, .NET community for, for a long time started to come back. And... Um, I don't know. I got I got this, this like re, reinvigorated around the .NET community and the .NET stuff. And so, when Ian Massingham, my boss, like, t- like contacted me on Twitter and said, "Would you be interested in joining AWS and doing .NET?" I was like, "Yeah, I could really. I'd been really quite like to get back to .NET actually." And so that's kind of what I do now, which is I talk to .NET developers about building .NET applications on AWS. Okay. And so it feels almost like coming home in some ways for me. Like I've done all this journey of lots of different languages and, and gone to different cloud providers and yeah. yeah, AWS and .NET seems to, for me like a little bit like, well, this is, this is kind of my thing. So you were out, you were in the .NET world in the, you know, like 
whatever, 2011, 20, you know, around that time. Forever, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. since 2000, since 2000, I've been involved in one way or the other with Microsoft. Yeah. And then you left and you came back and it was a new .NET kind of. Yeah, it felt like it. Like I've been following, um, just before I left um, Microsoft, I was doing uh, um, evangelism on .NET Core. Okay. So okay. I was traveling the country showing people with um, my partner in crime, Martin, Martin Kern. Oh, yeah. We do like these web days. I think we were yeah, using yeah. Your, your content. John. Yeah, well, you there wrote you those, go. those labs. And we, we like evolved those web days into like .NET Core days. Uh-huh. And we were doing a full day of, of .NET Core and some front end JavaScript sort of training. Okay. And um, yeah, I really like that was one of my, that was one of the most favorite like sort of periods of, uh, of um, uh, you know, my job at Microsoft. I uh-huh. really, I did really like doing that stuff and going on the road and meeting people and showing them .NET and giving them also, I thought, felt that .NET was giving them a, giving a future to .NET. Mm-hmm. Like .NET Core, sorry, was giving a future to .NET. And that was really uh, interesting. And then I'm starting to see people actually start learning .NET as well, like in, in a way that, I don't know, I haven't seen for a long time. So <laughs> .NET for, a lot, for, for, the, for the longest time has been .NET people, which were in it when I started. Right. Old timers and they're yeah, just yeah. hanging on because that's what they know, maybe. And that, as opposed to now, like you're saying, new people are learning .NET. And you, you get, you're, I'm finding newer people are learning .NET, and also people are um, coming back to it. So hmm. people which went away, people which went away on the great Node.js right, right. and the uh, and they started getting you know their heads turned by other languages have learned things and then are actually coming back into the .NET community. And I think that's really positive as well. So mm-hmm. you're seeing some really experienced .NET people coming back to the fold as well in and, some ways. Yeah, and it's kind of neat with that, bringing in also like practices and ideas and things, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, this works, you know, like we can learn from this. Yeah, right? yeah. I think that that's, again, it's like um, bringing sort of a freshness to it, which mm-hmm. is is really exciting. And that's why I'm kind of really invigorated to be back in and, and, and working in it uh, so much. And I think with AWS, the job at AWS is the .NET customers that we see at AWS are really progressive. Like they're doing really interesting things at huh. really high scale. Yeah. And I find that stuff fascinating. And um, I'm learning loads around, I know .NET pretty well, but and I know distributed systems quite well, but some of our customers are doing distributed at scales that I've never actually done in production. I've mm-hmm. never had to do that as a job. And they're solving problems that um, are very new to me. Um, uh, and it's very interesting to see how they're solving these problems and how they're building things. So some, some evangelism roles are more kind of like you're going to conferences and you're, you're speaking you know, to, to developers. And then some are working directly with companies that are doing things, like you said, pro- projects at scale and stuff like that. Sounds like you're doing both of those things. Well, I, yeah, I've done evangelism since 2010 for, mm-hmm. in, at Microsoft, at Oracle, and now at AWS. And I think part of your job is going to conferences and speaking. Part mm-hmm. of it is standing on a booth and uh, asking, yep. asking questions. I, st- I just snagged you from a booth. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Part of it... Um, but the best part is if you can go to customers and find out what they're doing, mm-hmm. find the best practices, find the things that are really working for them as customers, where they're getting their unique value from, how they're doing things in interesting ways. And then you can take those stories and tell those stories like on stages or mm. um, in blog posts or in videos. Right. That's the most impactful kind of imagination. Totally agree. And there's, there's always a... 
hey, look, let me show you some code I wrote in my hotel room. And it's like, yeah. there's some value to that. But if I can show you something, here's something that someone in the real world is using, or here's how this product does actually work for somebody else. Yeah. That well, means, if, you're, if you're an evangelist, what you were attempting to do is show someone enough code or enough that they could then independently run with that. Like they could mm. go and take that and do something with it. Because as an evangelist, what you're trying to do is encourage platform adoption like mm-hmm. to use your thing. So um, I guess it's like um, you can see a product, play with it for a few hours, come up with a demo and show that on stage. Mm-hmm. And that has a value to it. And mm-hmm. people will look at it and think, yeah, I can play with that as well. But if you can possibly find a customer which is using that new technology and really using it in some way to get actual business value, mm-hmm. and then you take that use case and then you demo that, yeah. That's way better because yeah. it, that's that's what the real value of that thing is. Not it's not what you can easily demo, mm-hmm. and um, quite often you'll find that the customer use cases are very different from what the product manager use cases are, right? Or what you can think of in your hotel, hotel room because yeah. you're in your hotel room or you know in your office, you're not dealing with a real business problem. You're thinking of ways of of how does this work, how does it fit together. And th- there's mm-hmm. value in that, but the real value is if you can really find a, a use case and demonstrate a that. A problem to solve and, yeah. Mm. So so in your, in your role, you've got two overlapping things. You've got AWS and .NET. So you've got some, which is .NET developers that are established there and coming to AWS. And you may have some AWS developers that are like, what's this .NET thing? Yeah, so, um, y- yeah, you have you have all sorts of uh, different sides of things. So you have customers which have been doing .NET in AWS for a long time. So mm-hmm. we'll have, we have customers which have been doing .NET or Windows in, in AWS since, since AWS had Windows support, which is mm-hmm. um, 2008. So it's like over wow. 10 years ago yeah. that they added support. It, you mentioned this to me when we were talking earlier that some of these are the progressive .NET shops that were looking for cloud hosting before there were really other options for .NET. Yeah, right? so I mean, AWS is like the original cloud hosting platform, right? If you wanted to do scale in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. there really was no other option. So it was it was like AWS or bust. Like there was mm-hmm. no um, there was no um, alternatives. Mm-hmm. I guess there are now. There are places. There's a lot of different places where customers could go for sort of web scale. Um, hosting, so you find that you know .NET companies which are doing things of scale around 2008, 2009, 2010 will naturally have been AWS customers, mm-hmm. and so those some of those customers um, are building really progressive things to this day, and, and still building really interesting uh, applications, and and so they really know AWS, yeah, and they know AWS now, they know AWS back in the day, <laughs> right. and then they they have a really perfect, they they understand .NET. Uh, and how best to utilize .NET on AWS. And um, they probably know it way better than I do, <laughs> and no yeah. doubt. Um, and then you have like the people which maybe are, they're experts in .NET, but they're not necessarily experts in, um, in cloud computing. Mm-hmm. So they, they might not have built stuff which is distributed. They might not have, they might, you know, but they're looking now at moving to sort of cloud and stuff. And they need like the basics of like, how does cloud work? How did how are regions organized? How are availability zones organized? How do we load balance applications? How do we scale applications? How do we horizontally scale applications? How do we build resiliency into our applications? Mm-hmm. And they want to know well how you do that on AWS, but then also how do you do that specifically for .NET? Yeah, um, and 
there are lots of different ways that you can do that in AWS for, for .NET. And there's lots of different, many, many different services in AWS which will make that easier. And so a lot of it's just like signposting people to, okay, if you want to do SQL Server in AWS, well, we have a managed SQL Server service called RDS, mm -hmm. Relational Database Service. That's what you use. If you want to use Redis, well, we have a service called Elastacache. That's basically a managed Redis service. You can use that. And so a lot of it's like signposting. Right, right. You want to run a container. Okay, we have a container service. We have a Kubernetes service. We have uh, an application hosting service called Elastic Beanstalk. It's often mm. just pointing them in the right direction about how they could get started and then, then you know, watching them bloom from there. Yeah. <laughs> so for the kind of, you know, bog standard, ASP, you know, new ASP.NET Core application, mm -hmm. what's the fastest way for me to get that up and running on AWS? So um, we have uh, a number of different um, SDKs uh, mm -hmm. at AWS. We have an SDK specifically for, um, for uh, C Sharp. So okay. if you want to access any of the services, then we have an SDK for that. But the, the most common way and the simplest way is to download the tooling for Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. We have Visual Studio support 2013, 2015. Um, I think we've been supporting since 2013. But we have like the, the latest plugin supports uh, 2017, 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, the day that 2019 was released, we released support for uh, our, our AWS plugin. Yeah. Um, wow. It's a V6. That's a new. I only just discovered that it's meant to be .v6. Like that's the name of it. I've always called it a Visix, uh, but a .v6 apparently is the proper name for the Visual Studio extension. Uh, so a V6 <laughs> uh, extension in Visual Studio, which you install that, and then you have this thing called the AWS Explorer. Okay. And it will. It sort of um, enables you to go to any ASP.NET Core or ASP.NET Full Fat application. Mm -hmm. Right-click on the project and just say publish to, let's say, Elastic Beanstalk. Okay. And then that will guide you through a wizard, a graphical user interface, which says, okay, I want to put this on Elastic Beanstalk. We'll package that application up, throw it over to AWS, and you will get a URL where mm -hmm. that's published. Um, if you want to say, okay, I want to publish to Elastic Beanstalk, I want five instances mm -hmm. of this application, and I want it to be load balanced, you would just put that in the settings press deploy, it would deploy it, it would create five instances, deploy your application to those five instances, put a load balancer in front, and then load balance it across those five instances. So how about managing, like, uh, a common model is to have, like, git push deployment, right? Where yeah. I push my code to GitHub, and it automatically webhooks, do magic, and it's deployed. Yeah, so we, obviously we have a CLI, so mm -hmm. everything can be scripted. Ah. So yeah. we could, you could script it from the CLI as, you know, if you wanted to. You could, um, we have uh, cloud formation templates, which are like a template uh, which describes how a cloud infrastructure is built. Okay. That is another way of creating the infrastructure. We have a thing called the uh, cloud development kit, which is like a way of creating infrastructure through code using C Sharp. Ah, uh, nice. Um, and so there's many, many ways that you could write a script in Jenkins or um, in whatever build or deployment tool that you've got. And lots of those tools like Jenkins and, and um, and uh, uh, Octa Deploy or whatever yeah, deployment yeah. tool you use will have extensions for AWS or um, you know there's ways of, of getting that to deploy AWS okay. stuff. Um, we also have like our own suite of um, like CI/CD tooling, which allows you to do that sort of. Ah, great! You okay. can pu push to Git 
uh, GitHub or our version of Git, and then we go through a whole CI/CD pipeline and deploy it. So you've got everything from CI/CD deployment. You can do it yourself on your whatever you use, whether you use Jenkins or on our managed service. Um, we also have um, um, plugins for uh, Azure Azure DevOps. Mm-hmm. Um, you can plug into Azure DevOps to then deploy to AWS. Ah. So if you're building on Azure. Right, Azure. I don't know. I'm probably pronouncing Azure yeah. in a very formal way. But yeah. if, you, if you're if you're building on Azure, then uh, you could uh, you can do your dev test and, and and then you could deploy the final production to AWS. So we have like any way that you can imagine you could deploy. Of course, we support everything. We even have if PowerShell is your thing, we have yeah. a, a PowerShell interface that allows you to basically write PowerShell commands to go and. Uh, Publish that stuff as well. So, what about Lambda? What's are you are you using Lambda much for th- like? Yeah, because I've seen the model where you have. I've personally been offloading like background processing stuff sure. from my ASP.NET Core apps and have that go off and you know some function in the cloud and then like you know what I mean. So yeah, there's three. There's predominantly there's three ways that people host applications. So Elastic Beanstalk, which is what I just showed talked mm-hmm. about there. There is like containers, mm-hmm. and containers, we have three services for containers, and they all do slightly different things. Um, won't go into too much. And then you have serverless, okay. which is lambdas. Yeah. Now, I use lambda when it first came out and Azure Functions for like simple things where you, you, know, you have an API, you call the API, and uh, it runs a function, and then there's some kind of output. Right. right. Really straightforward things. But what we're seeing more and more are people building like full applications from a Lambda, hmm. in Lambda, sorry. And so they're not only just creating one function, they might be creating like four or five functions which describe their, their API. And then they're you know, deploying that as an application maybe with a serverless database like uh, DynamoDB. Oh, right. Um, and then they're using API Gateway as a sort of front uh, entrance to their um their serverless application, which proxies to different lambdas and they orchestrate the lambdas to create real proper applications and, mm-hmm. and not just you know the odd running task, but actually you know replacing whole things that you'd ordinarily build maybe as web applications okay. being completely replaced by serverless infrastructure, which has the advantage of you're only ever paying for what you physically use. Yeah, um, there's a great example in if you install the. Uh, AWS um, Visual Studio tools, mm-hmm. you can say file new uh, AWS Lambda, and then it will go to this selection of like what we call blueprints, okay. which are like uh, example projects. And there's one called ASP.NET uh, Core Web App, I think it's called. So you say file new AWS Lambda, and then you say, I want an, a- uh, an AWS, AWS Net, ASP.NET <laughs> Core, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, project. And what it does is it creates what you would imagine as an ASP.NET website, mm-hmm. MVC with controllers and routing. Right. Yeah. And it has a Lambda entry point, okay? And it also provisions an API gateway for you. And what that will do or enable you to have is a full, like, the, the standard um, ASP.NET sample website. Yeah. But hosted within a lambda. This is spinning my head a bit. Yeah, and it spun my head a little bit too. Uh, in that <laughs> what we what we technically do is you have an API gateway. Mm-hmm. An API gateway is just like a it's a service that we have which can take HTTP requests and route them to different places. Okay. And then that routes it to a function, mm-hmm. and then that function then calls the 
MVC application, that MVC application goes all the way through to the root, returns a view, and then that view is returned by the Lambda. So the actual ASP.NET core application is hosted inside a function? Yeah, I, you could imagine it like that. Okay. And so when a, when a HTTP request comes in, it's a your domain name, WAC, um, home WAC management. Right. Um, that is proxy to the, the Lambda function. And then the Lambda function receives the parameters home and management. Mm-hmm. And then it routes them to the correct position in your .NET Core application. So for .NET, the .NET Core app just sees it coming in as like a request okay. to home that, that management. So yeah. it goes to the home controller, goes to the, the, uh, the management um, uh, handler. Yeah. And then controller. And then it will re- literally return the view for that home wow. management. So <laughs> when you host it like this, and when you build one of those things, yeah. and deploy it, you get a URL, you go to that URL, and it just looks like a website. And you press home, and you're at the home, and you press about, and it goes to the about section. Right. And um, you know, it's, what's interesting about that is that there is not a uh, IIS server sitting behind that which is constantly running. Right. Every time you invoke it, we run a Lambda function, that Lambda function Cause this web application returns a view. It's yeah. a very weird and wonderful yeah, yeah. world. And I'm not sure maybe it's a good example. It's a nice technical demo. Yeah. Not necessarily sure it's like got that many, like you maybe want to build that exact use case in that way. Mm-hmm. But the idea of building full applications in Lambda is now very much possible. Yeah. But it's by combining things like Lambda with API Gateway, DynamoDB, right. um, Cognito, which is a managed serverless authentication platform that we have in AWS. Okay. So basically taking all these little jigsaw puzzle pieces, yeah. plugging them all together and creating applications which like that that Lambda example is super high scale, like really can high like scale really highly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's not being used, you don't pay anything. Right. And that's really that's a key feature, right? Yeah. I, 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 I was thinking like a really stupid use case for this is you remember those sort of brochure websites that you build for companies mm-hmm. which are never visited. Right. Right. If you built one of those, like once once every three months, somebody will browse this. Yeah, like it's a, like a a company's financial results or something mm-hmm. like that. Like one day it's busy, but the rest of the year it's not. But you do need it to be live yeah. every day, but it's never visited. Well, that would be the perfect sort of website to build like that and to use that exact function for, because you know you only ever pay when someone visits that website. Mm-hmm. And so it can be online constantly, but all the time it's not being visited, you're paying no money. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an interesting way of, of, of building that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, when cloud hosting was first coming out, I think a lot of people approached it as this is a way for massive scale and you can scale way up and all that. But I, I think what you're talking about there is the ability to scale way down and micro scale and pay just for what you need yeah. is really and, huge. And then the, the more common scenario in Lambda is to create architectural patterns where lambdas place things in queues um, mm-hmm. and then other lambdas pick that work up from queues and you um, you know you're basically deconstructing your applications into asynchronous pieces of work which are highly scalable right and um, uh, you know there's lots of customers which are doing really interesting things like that there's a charity in the UK called comic relief mm-hmm. they um, I was watching a session at our one of our summits in London and they're on stage explaining that they have a donations platform, which is mm-hmm. really busy um, for one night of the year when they yeah. take over BBC One. Okay. And um, they do this comedy show and, you know, they're constantly asking for donations. Yeah. And um, they they shared with the audience that they, they, I think it was somewhere around, they, for that one month of hosting, they used to pay £85,000 or $85,000 
for that hosting mm -hmm. and for that web application to scale. And then the, basically every year they would throw the application away effectively and then they'd rebuild it next wow. year. And they moved um, a couple of years back into a serverless architecture mm -hmm. and they've gone from their, their hosting, hosting costs for that March month of March have gone down from, I think, $85,000 to somewhere around $5,000. Wow. It's a 93% savings yeah. is the amount. Um, they're handling more load. <laughs> they're processing more transactions. They're yeah. having, you know, by moving to a serverless architecture. So that's an example of someone building a, a fully blown application and saving tons of money doing it. It's yeah. not like real scale saving tons of money by moving to serverless. And I think that uh, anyone which is in doubt about whether or not serverless is, is a good idea should really think about, like, that company's able to save 93% costs. Yeah. This is yeah. something I should definitely have a look at and, and think about how I might, how would I possibly architect my current application mm -hmm. if I were going to look at it in a serverless way? And yeah, it's so, interesting. At a, a small scale, I've worked on things, a hybrid application, like a web front end, and then it's doing some like search search processing and yep. some indexing and stuff, and I'm able to run my web application at a very low cost, low scale, and then offload that kind of more intensive processing to functions. When it needs to scale up, it does, and most of the time it's not costing any money. You know, yeah. So that, that's, that's another pattern which a lot of people are using, which is um, you know statically hosting their websites, mm. and then they use serverless. Um, Serverless providers for authentication, like in AWS, Cognito, you just yeah. um, and there's other providers like Auth0 and people like mm -hmm. that. Um, so to do the login, they use that, but the website is actually you know all static HTML. And then when they want to do any sort of processing, they just do a form which posts to a Lambda, and then the Lambda does the processing, the back end sort of side of things. Yeah. So their actual web hosting is you know. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, it's just however much it costs you to run storage uh, S3 or, yeah, or whatever, or yeah. whatever, you, whatever you've got in in, in Azure or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's 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 actually a product in AWS called Amplify, which allows you to build web applications and mobile applications, and it's it builds this concept of serverless backends, static front end websites. Hmm. It's all command line front end based, and it's 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 really powerful. And you can, with a couple of lines, create like web applications which have you know authentication elastic search all these things just integrated but like they're all on demand and right it's just a different way of thinking about applications and uh, if you do it get it right you can save a lot of money <laughs> and uh, and also I think the, the the other thing that people are looking for is just the scalability and the burstability like yeah yeah. yeah, and agility too. Like I, I'm looking at something with a small website, and the the direction we've chosen to go with this is just rewrite significant parts by creating new functions. And when it's time, we can flip over the function. So it's this whole modular cloud hosting. Nothing yeah. ever comes offline. There's no big bang deployment. It's just flip a connection, and now we're pulling data from one place instead of another. Yeah, and, and the other thing about functions, which you get to, is what I found at least is that people will often start building in a language which they're familiar with, like let's say they're a C-sharp developer and they start mm -hmm. writing C-sharp functions. And then they'll come to a point, one of their APIs or one of their microservices might have a thing that they need to do which is difficult in that language. Right. And they'll just write that part, part in a different language. Like I wrote recently ah, a, right. a a, basically a workflow. Uh, I create a workflow in, in AWS with step functions. And that and me allows you to sort of orchestrate functions, like do this, then this, then this, then this. Right. And uh, what it did was it took 
an, uh, an S3, an S3 like image, uh, sorry, audio file was uploaded to a bucket. Mm-hmm. That sent an event to a lambda. Mm-hmm. That lambda did some processing on that file, and then it passed it to another lambda. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was do some audio processing. Now, audio processing in C sharp is really hard because there's yeah. not really like open source libraries for it. And the ones that there exist are actually quite expensive. Huh. The one which could do the thing that I wanted to do was like $3,000 for oh, a license. Wow. Yeah. So I searched a little bit and asked a couple of friends like how I would do this audio manipulation. And someone said, there's a thing called PyDub in Python. Hmm. You could use that. And uh, I was like, all right. So I looked at PyDub, never using Python, never written Python. Within five minutes, I've got like 10 lines of code, uh, which absolutely do the thing that I need. Yeah. So I stick that in a function. I build it as part of my workflow. Right. Most of my applications in C Sharp, that one thing that I can't do in C Sharp very easily, I'm doing in Python. Yeah. And I see that again and again as a pattern that customers will come with a single language and then they start using the right tool for the right job. Like yeah. Python's really good at certain things. C Sharp's really good at other things. And mm-hmm. uh, um, serverless gives you the ability to mix and match with, um, with you know, whilst remaining agile. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is great stuff. So, where where should people go to learn more? Um, about uh, if you want to learn more about uh, .NET, mm-hmm. then if you go to AWS WAC, uh, Net, then AWS.com WACnet, mm-hmm. then you'll find our landing page for .NET and explain more about AWS and .NET and all the different things, all the GitHub libraries that, uh, sorry, places where you can go on GitHub to learn more about uh, our, our SDK and uh, look at the code for our SDK and, and all that good stuff. Okay. Um, and if you just want to know about AWS, just go to AWS. AWS right. <laughs> and, and also importantly, as we conclude, to, to bring it all back, if they want to learn about client requests through the ages. Yeah. Well, my name's The Beebs, which is embarrassing because uh, there is another Canadian singer, which is also known as The Beebs. Uh, uh, so whenever I'm outside of the UK... you got to U- fight it out someday. Whenever I'm outside of the UK, people are like going, you know The Beebs is Justin Bieber. That nickname is already taken. And, yeah. um, so but you I, had it first, I think. I had it first, but it doesn't matter. Like uh, apparently, apparently, he's more successful. <laughs> well, so, uh, it's subjective. Uh, it's a, a, yeah. Yeah. In, uh, so The Beebs is... a. T H E B E E B S, um, and if you search the Beebs client requests, then you'll find that blog post, and you'll find my blog, blog post, which is thebeebs.net is my blog, or beebs.co.uk is my blog. Awesome! Thanks for your time. Cheers, John. <laughs>